This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Coy, thumb through any dictionary and it'll tell you it means reluctant to give details, reserved. Coy means mystery. Hope, hop, skip, and a jump a few thousand words forward, and hope is defined as a feeling of expectation, a desire for a certain thing to happen. Amethyst. Any linguistic etymologist worth her salt will tell you the word is derived from the Greek amethystos, which means to be not drunken, to be clear-eyed and sober. Coy and hope. Mystery and faith. Put coy and hope together, you get a little amethyst. The clarity of sobriety. The ability to see past the haze of now, into the future, to see something better. Coy and hope and amethyst. The Harlegens. Theirs is a family in need of a story, one that will allow them to live in the Mansonoid post-60s dropout drag of the age of Nixon. If only someone could tell them that story, could put together the pieces so we could all see a little more clearly. Some ex-old lady had hit town, and they'd run away together. The emergency room had mixed them up with somebody else, the way maternity wards switched babies around, and they were still on some intensive care ward under another name. It was a particular kind of disconnected denial, and Doc figured he'd seen enough by now to recognize it. In his novel Inherent Vice, that's how Thomas Pynchon described the post-1960s generation coming of age in 1970, bleary-eyed and hungover from the last decade and the damage done, and afflicted with the cruelest kind of misery, absolutely devastated by the grief of loss, yet operating in complete denial of the existence of that grief and loss telling them stories, as Joan Didion would say, in order to live. Stories that explained away the deaths of their loved ones as strange and grand mysteries, rather than their cruel and banal fates. In Paul Thomas Anderson's film, the narrator Sordelige intones that the post-Manson era in which Doc and company found themselves in was perilous, astrologically speaking, for dopers, especially those of high school age, who'd been born, most of them, under a 90-degree aspect, the unluckiest angle possible, between Neptune, the doper's planet, and Uranus, the planet of rude surprises. Doc had known it to happen that those left behind would refuse to believe that people they loved, or even took the same classes with, were really dead. They came up with all kinds of alternate stories so it wouldn't have to be true. As I've said in several previous episodes, Inherent Vice is, among many other things, a hangover film. A hangover from the chaos and dashed dreams of the 1960s, which cruelly crystallized, as Didion also tells us, on August 9th, 1969, when members of Charlie Manson's desert death cult, The Family, killed Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Stephen Parent, Wojciech Frakowski, and Abigail Folger. As such, for an episode that reckons with the damage done to a generation in Manson's wake, as well as their exploitation at the cruel hands and golden fangs of even darker forces, I can think of no better conversation partner than today's guest, who, when not inflaming certain rather insecure wings of dumb dude Twitter with her opinions on the thirsty excellence of The Last Jedi, is exploring the pop phenomenon of Manson, the death of the 60s, 
and the Collapse of a Counterculture. A critic and culture writer whose work has appeared in Nerdist, Thrillist, Slash Film, Vulture, Teen Vogue, Marie Claire, and the Chicago Tribune, I am thrilled to have Lindsay Romaine on the show today. Thank you Lindsay. so much for having me. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, so, so happy to be here. So you were the first and only person I thought of for this scene when I was scheduling the, uh, the entirety of this series. Something about this scene just struck me as very, as very Lindsay. The, <laughs> this portrait of a kind of broken and spun out generation post Manson really unsure of the world that they're living in now this the the landscape that the death of the 60s which a lot of people including our pal joan kind of lay at the feet of manson living in this this post set post 60s manson landscape this just seemed to me like if nothing else your shit Absolutely. You are very correct. This is actually <laughs> probably my favorite scene in the movie, uh, obviously because it stars the fabulous Jenna Malone, who just I love every time she pops up in something. But yeah, I do think it captures exactly what you're talking about, which is this feeling of like a lost child of the 60s, you know, moving into the 70s and all that that represents and kind of this this sad story of a recovered drug addict, which is something that, you know, the Manson girls would become so yeah there's there's a lot of that reflected in this moment and having read some of your work or a lot of your work i don't know i said some of your work <laughs> having read so much of your work i do i get the sense that you maybe have a a complicated relationship with a lot of paul thomas anderson's films or at least some of them and that i don't think you're probably as bowled over with his his oeuvre as which is a fun word to say if you want to take a moment to say it with me oeuvre it's a fun word oeuvre love it oeuvre 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 yeah. uh i'm sorry everybody listening at home uh so you know what i'm not sorry hey everyone just take it let's all take a break yeah, together just say oeuvre. Everyone, it sounds me good. Lindsay, everyone at home three two one oeuvre. oeuvre yeah that's a fun word but from the reading that I've done, I don't think that you are, are as bowled over with the entirety of his filmography as so many people and so many nerds like myself are. Would that be the case? I think it's kind of half and half. He's not like necessarily someone I rank super duper high on my list of favorite directors, but that's not because I dislike him or anything. I don't know that I share like some of the exact same passion, but I, I feel like the movies that I really love of his... I shouldn't say are the underrated ones because I don't know that any of his movies are necessarily underrated. I think there's corners of the film world that love everything that he's made in like different levels of, of appreciation. So, um, but I'd say like my favorites of his tend to be the kind of zanier things. Like my favorite is definitely Boogie Nights. That's just one of my favorite movies in general. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I definitely do enjoy his work. I don't know that I speak as passionately about him as I do some other directors that I really love, though. So you don't see yourself dedicating a year to doing a scene-by-scene -scene podcast exploring one of his films? Probably not. Probably not, but I'm not opposed to that either. I could talk about Phantom Thread for like a year straight. <laughs> what would be in your zany half? In addition to Boogie Nights, I'm assuming I, in hair. I mean, you're on the show. I'm assuming yeah. in hair advice is one of them. <laughs> I would say, like, if someone asked me my like, you know, to rank my my Paul Thomas Anderson movies, I would start with Boogie Nights. Inherent Vice would probably be number two. I, I don't know if Zane. Maybe now I feel like I'm 
chose the wrong word, but I think number three would be Phantom Thread and then maybe like The Master. It's funny, like I think a lot of people's is like There Will Be Blood and that one's like probably at the bottom of my list. It's just like, it's interesting. Not not that I don't like that movie, but it's just of of his works, I would say that that one holds the least appeal to me. But yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> well, I do, I do, I do appreciate anyone who would who would stick a post-it note on Phantom Thread and label it zany. I do I do like that. <laughs> it's got a little bit of zaniness to it. I, I mean, think. especially towards the end there. It's, it, that's yeah. a wacky, that's a wacky love story. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's zip back. Let's go back to the Wayback Machine and pull over in December of 2014. PTA's new film, Inherent Vice, it's just been released. Did you see it when it came out? I did see it when I came out. I saw it at the Music Box in uh, Chicago. Oh, you're one of those cool kids. <laughs> His movies always play there earlier than everywhere else, including L.A. It drives me yeah. crazy. What did you think when you saw it? I loved it. Um, I had a friend who was... I actually saw it by myself, if I recall correctly. Um, I used to go to movies by myself a lot. And um, I had a friend who had just read the book and was really like hyped on it. And so kind of I was feeding off of her energy of that. And so, yeah, I loved it. And I actually read the book right after seeing it. I was working in a bookstore at the time, so it was like readily available to me. So I think the two, those two things, you know, reading the book right after seeing the movie kind of, yeah, I don't know, you get more into something that way. So yeah, I was really into it. I'm a big Joaquin Phoenix fan and was especially a big Joaquin fan, Phoenix fan then. Uh, it was like the height of my crush on him. So that helps too. <laughs> um but yeah i was really into it it's a it was definitely a good music box experience this is a film that a lot of people even the people who love the movie now this is a film that upon first viewing does not invite everybody to the party yeah there's a lot of people who again people who love it did not like it outright hated it when it first came out and i'm curious why did it speak to you so quickly? What about it just just rang your bell right off the bat? I mean, I think for me, like, right away, it's, like, kind of steeped in this aesthetic that I really love. Like, as you mentioned at the top, like, I do write a lot about 60s counterculture and that kind of thing. So just, like, the look of it was something that I was immediately drawn to. You know, the costumes, the the makeup, the kind of haziness that comes with that vibe. I think just above anything else, I was immediately drawn to that. It kind of oriented me in this world. And I think I just vibed with the whole, like, the pace of it, too. Like, I kind of like a slow-paced movie. I kind of like a movie where some of it feels like nonsense. (laughs) Like, most of my favorite movies don't have, like, super coherent plots and don't necessarily play by any rules. So I think I actually liked that, like, almost disorganized vibe that I had too. Um, that's just something that that I vibe with. Yeah, I think I just said the word vibe like 16 times. So you <laughs> did, you, you did. You. <laughs> but previous previous guest, Fran Hoffner, did say this movie is a vibe movie. This is yeah. a vibe film. So we're going to throw that. We, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep that in the increment vice lexicon. Okay. We're going to vibe with this film. And I also have to say, uh, one of the things, I, I, I so love your approach to film and film writing. So to the point that I I I am impressed with the fact that when you describe a film as slow, hazy nonsense, that's a compliment. Yeah. Like you're able to deliver that as a compliment. This is slow, hazy nonsense, and that's your vibe. Yeah. And I agree. I I also I think that I think that's one of the things that 
so turned people off at the time because you know that you watch the trailer and it looks like the naked gun part four right but uh this is this is and i i you know i i get the feeling if uh if if pta were here with us if if he heard you say slow hazy nonsense i could hear him in that valley boy drawl going yeah yeah that's kind of <laughs> what we were doing yeah i could yeah. see that slow hazy not yeah that's that's pretty good yeah and I, and I, I I definitely feel that's kind of the aim of the film in a way. Yeah. And now that now, since now that you've answered the next thing I was going to ask, I was going to you've read the book. Do you have a pre- preference between book or film? I actually think I like the movie better. I not that it's it is better. I think you know I, if anything, it feels like a pretty close adaptation. But I do like the presence of like the narrator in the movie a lot. Uh, that's something that that really drew me in also. And I, I like that he kind of, again, oriented it in this sort of female gaze along with male gaze. I, I do like the way that those two things complement each other in the movie. But I do think I really appreciated that I read the book because like I said, the plot sometimes can feel a little nonsensical. And I like that after reading the book, I felt like I had a little bit firmer grasp on like what was going on with some of the, the, the complicated yeah, I mean, the book... layers. Yeah. <laughs> The book certainly undergirds things. And I, I would recommend anyone who loves the film read the book, although the book is very different. And for anyone who's who's been listening to every episode of the show, which, God damn it, Lindsay, I think you should. I don't know if you have yet, but you should. I listened um, to the first episode, I promise. But that's it, huh? You tuned out after that, huh? Okay, that's cool. Behind I'm on so much stuff from the holidays. Stiff, I'm sorry. Stiff upper lip, Travis. Stiff upper lip. You're going to get through it. <laughs> One then then well then then you won't be bored by this as as much as some people out there listening might be. One of the thing one of the ideas that I've really been hitting nearly every episode, if not every episode, as we go through this, is I adore I, I love the book, but I, I I adore the film so much more for a very specific reason, and that is the book to me is very much Pynchon's LG for the death of a decade and all of its promise using a romantic breakup as a metaphor for that. I think he's looking back at, at from 2009, which is when the book came out. He's looking back for sitting in 2009, looking at 1969 and the book very much has that feeling like uh, Fonda as Captain America at the end of easy writer when he's just staring at the fire saying, we blew it, you know, we, we fucked this up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, it's a man towards the end of his life, looking back at, a t- at, at the, the promise of his heyday in his youth and a more naive and hopeful time for the country that he loves and seeing how far askew things went, how far afield things went. And so he wrote this, wrote this book using the, the souring of Doc and Shasta's love as a metaphor for the souring of the American fate. And that's great. That's, that's, that's great. He's a genius. We all know that. But what I love about the film is how those ideas are inverted by PTA's romanticism that runs through all of his films and in, in inherent vice, the film becomes this melancholy love story. That's about the death of a relationship and it, it, as I said, it inverts things from the book where this is about the death of Doc and Shasta's love and it uses the death of a decade, the end of a decade, the post-Manson 
entrance into the 70s as a metaphor for relation uh, relationships breakup and i don't know why but for whatever reason that very noirish romanticism that hits me a lot harder than the no no offense to tom the almost kind of okay boomer lg for the 60s that i feel like we've heard and seen so 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 many times before yeah, I think that's really interesting. I don't know that I had really thought of it that way, but I'm sure a lot of that comes from the perspective, you know, of, of so- someone who was actually living that life during 1969 versus a filmmaker who was, what, Paul Thomas Anderson was born in 1970, I think. So, like, BTA someone who... Was, yeah, born yeah. the same year the movie takes place. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's almost, like, a... There's that separation between experience there and, like, so someone looking back on this time who never experienced and someone who did experience that, I'm sure that informs that. But, yeah, I think I have to agree with you there that I prefer that later, that latter approach to it as well, because I think the relationship, the way that Paul Thomas Anderson handles relationships in all of his films is and love, especially romance, is so fascinating to me. I think that's why something like this and Phantom Thread are really high up on my list because I just think they're these two really fascinating relationships that don't feel like things I see in movies that often. Exactly. And, and isn't that, I think that you could you could call that the through line that runs through all of his films. I, I mean, I've, yeah. I've, said, I've said this to previous guests. To me, his movies are about love. They're all about love. You know, I, I get kind of annoyed when uh, some of, uh, I have friends who, who they love, there will be blood, and that's a, I, it's a, it's a movie I think people should love. It. It's, it's, a, it's a, it's a masterpiece, but they love it because they're like, oh yeah, this is about, this is a fuck you to America and capitalism and oil, and it's a, I watch and I watch that movie and I don't think about those things at all. I think about Daniel Plainview fucking up, the the love that he has for his adopted son, yeah, uh, and 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 so many, not so many, all of his films to me, they're about the love that we it's about how we encounter love as adults love for anyone who we were not born into their world anyone who's not connected to us by dna whether it's uh the the twisted kind of father-son adoptive father-son relationships of boogie nights and sydney or heart eight or something like the the real life father twisted father relationships of magnolia or the i don't deserve love i'm broken how can anyone fall in love with me of punch drunk love as i said you got the plain view and his adopted son and there will be blood you've got the oh my god will you two just fuck already twisted <laughs> a love of the master and then obviously you have phantom thread and then, oh, I mean, of course, the film that we're talking about today. And I feel like each of these films examines from very unconventional angles the the way in which we fall in love as adults, whether it's yeah. the love of an adopted child or the way we can't process the fact that someone loves us or the way we can't figure out how to forgive someone that we love who has wronged us or as in the case of Inherent Vice, this this idea of how do we let go of someone that we love? How can we let them go? And that, that is exactly what this scene is about today. It's about that inability to let go, that Didion-esque thing of, no, 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 there's, there's, there's got to be a story behind this. There's a reason for this. It can't just be someone left me. It can't just be someone died. 
there has to be something bigger because I can't live without this love. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and especially the quote that you mentioned at the top of the episode, the thing about um, Doc had known it to happen, that those left behind would refuse to believe that people they loved or even took the same classes with were really dead. I love that addition of even took the same classes <laughs> with. It's just like, you know, I feel like in a way it almost falls into what we were saying, just this idea of, of relationships and how we hold on to certain things that really permeates out of this movie. And yeah, I do think all of his movies, I think the reason why... Paul Thomas Anderson is great beyond just the like technical precision of his films and you know the the writing and what whatnot is that there's a tenderness to all of his movies uh, that makes them feel so human and so yeah just like this kind of there's a sweetness to everything <laughs> even something like there will be blood and that really speaks to me on like a human level and yeah I think it definitely shows up a lot in this scene in particular. If you don't cry at least once during a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, <laughs> you are missing crucial parts of yourself. Yeah. You, 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 you know, you might as well go join the Manson family. If you don't cry at at least one moment, my God, the slow boat to China scene in the master, if that doesn't devastate people, ah, I don't want you on the I don't want you on the show. You better that you better have cried at that scene. I actually I, I cried at that scene. I also today I just rewatched uh, Inherent Vice before recording, just so it was fresh on my mind. And I even found myself tearing up at like such little moments, like the, even just him like reading the postcard and like you oh. know his kind of memories coming back. It's just like there's yeah there's just these beautiful moments where he kind of interplay interlays different moments of you know kind of evoking memory and stuff and that's kind of thing really gets to me like memory being weaved into movies is always like a trigger for crying for me oh boy we're gonna we're about to get heavy here we're gonna get heavy <laughs> you know what we should do our top five moments of inherent vice that make us cry oh boy oh well, i will I I'll, I'll, I'll throw one out there i'll throw okay. one out there if again if you don't shed a tear when, spoiler alert, uh, if you don't shed a tear when Doc drops Coy Harlingen off at his house. You're right. You're nervous. You know what the Indians say? You saved my life. Oh, no. Now you're responsible. No, for no, it. no, man. No, that's not true. Some hippie made that up, man. You saved your own life, man. Now you get to live it. Yeah. At the end of everything, Doc had enough leverage. He could have done nearly anything he wanted vis-a-vis -vis the Golden Fang at the end of this movie. He doesn't try to rescue Shasta and get her back in his life. He doesn't try to take a lot of cash. He just sees an opportunity to put one family back together. Yeah. And he does it. And then when when Coy hops out of the car and he's running up to the house and the Amethyst theme is playing and you hear this family reunited, what's Doc doing? He's sadly looking at his passenger seat where Shasta should be, but isn't. And realize that, you know, he, he's made, he's done the right thing, but he's maybe lost the chance for the one thing that would have made him feel as complete as Coy and Hope now feel. And oh boy. We're going to have to take a break, Lindsay. I got to go. I have to go like bite down on something hard and uh, clear my mind. But yeah, that gets to me. That really gets to me. And of course, the pot, the, 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 the postcard scene. That, that, I mean, who yeah. isn't devastated by that? Blue 
And when you hear Neil Young, start to my God, come on. Yeah, that whole scene, like the flashback in the rain too, just like all of that kind of com- coming together, uh, <laughs> gets me really bad. Oh my God, oh, we, we this is this this got way more emotional. Not way more emotional. I expect to get emotional during this sequence. This got very early. We got emotional in this. I didn't think we were gonna get emotional until until after the scene. <laughs> Speaking of which, what do you say? You and I, we take a break. We watch this scene, and we come back, and we talk about it. Sounds great. All right. And your husband is? Dead. Mm-hmm. Sorry to hear that. You want a cookie? I'm all right, thank you. So you never heard of him or his music? Mm-hmm. Inside the surf sax category, he was this towering figure, because he actually improvised once in a while, instead of just repeating the second and third chorus note for note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Koi and I should have met cute, but we actually met squalid. Down at Oscars in San Ysidro. Oh boy. I had just run into this bathroom stall without checking first, and I already had my finger down my throat to vomit up this big balloon of dope I had just scored, and there Koi sat. Gringo digestion, about to take this giant shit. And we both let go at the same time, and there's just vomit and shit all over the place. And with my head in his lap, and to complicate things, he had this heart on. Sure. One thing leads to another, and we pretty much started shooting up together on a regular basis. (laughs) Then along comes the Lamethyst. stomach for it, but this is what we had her looking like. Everybody helpfully pointed out how the heroin was actually coming through my breast milk, but Mm -hmm. who could afford formula, you know? It's a long way from where we are now. Yeah, no, it seems like you're doing real good. I'm a drug counselor. Sorry? A drug counselor? Uh Trying to talk kids in a sensible drug use. <laughs> what do you think of my choppers? Hmm. You like them? No, no, I, yes. Yeah, no, I hadn't noticed. Heroin sucks the calcium out of your body like a vampire. If you use it for any length of time, your teeth just go all to hell. And that's the good part. So listen, this, uh, this thing that happened to your husband, how, how can I help you? Mr. Sportello, I don't think Koi's really dead. What? Did you ID his body? No. Whoever was it called just said that one of his band members did that. I mean, whoever called? What, the police? I mean, it's, it's uh, supposed to be next of kin. And then this deposit shows up, close to his disappearance. Interesting song. Why would this big deposit just suddenly appear in my account? I went to the bank. I talked to the bank manager for an hour. He kept saying over and over, you just lost your deposit slip. You just lost your deposit slip. You just lost your deposit slip. And I don't lose deposit slips this big. Do you have a spare picture of I can borrow? That I do have. 
These were perilous times, astrologically speaking, for dopers, especially those of high school age, who'd been born, most of them, under a 90-degree aspect, the unluckiest angle possible, between Neptune, the doper's planet, and Uranus, the planet of rude surprises. Doc had known it to happen, that those left behind would refuse to believe that people they loved or even took the same classes with were really dead. They came up with all kinds of alternate stories so it wouldn't have to be true. How would Cora and Shasta know each other? She picked us up hitchhiking once. I think Cora and her stayed in touch somehow. I don't really know for sure. hug and this is it's like the film stock is flashed like the long goodbye everything's that hazy blue just that oh that gets to me that still gets to me and what's great about this film and this scene in particular is this is more than just film noir you know when 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 the film was first announced that it was i was very excited because like oh hey great speaking of the long goodbye PTA is going to be making his long goodbye. He's going to be making his noir movie. And I was fine with just that. And instead, what happens in this film, and what ha- and it happens specifically in this moment, is that it's so much more than just noir. Here is where the noir elements dovetail into something more personal and more mournful. And those the elements like we were talking earlier about you know what for Pinchon was the death of a, of a of an era, and what for for Doc and these characters is simply the death of their their love for their loved ones or the death of their loved ones themselves. All of these things braid together with the noir mystery, and all of a sudden, all the disparate plot and thematic elements of the film are one and the same. And that is just that is just so gorgeous to me, and I think so much of that is in this scene right here. Yeah, I agree. This also feels like where the movie, like the plot, obviously it starts at the beginning with Shasta showing up, but like this is where it feels like the kind of heart of the movie comes in because obviously Mm -hmm. it's the through line that carries us through to kind of to the emotional core of everything else that happens after this. So it it feels in a way almost like the start of of Doc's like true journey in this movie. Exactly. Uh, On a prior episode, a guest Drew McQueenie was on and he was talking about what really throws people about this film sometimes is that as much as the 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 emotional heartbeat and the soul of this movie is Doc and Shasta and their strained love for one another plot wise this ends up not being the big noir movie you expect or even the big breakup relationship movie you would maybe then expect with between Doc and Shasta it's about this wayward detective in a time in which everything has soured and eviled and gone wrong, looking to do one small goodness in the world and taking stock of what is available to him and realizing the one good thing that he is capable of doing is putting a family back together. That's all he can do. He can't, he's not going to kill the golden fang or the head of the golden fang. We don't even know who that is. He's not 
going to keep Nixon from getting uh, reelected. And while I love the film so, so, so much, and this is not a knock on that film, but he doesn't do what Rick and Cliff do at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and write this elemental evil wrong that occurred. He simply gets two fucked up ex-junkies back under the same roof because that's all he can do. And there's something so sweet and noble in the both the smallness yet the importance of that, that act, that, that, that ability to do a small kindness in a world in which everything has gone wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, I mean, if we're going back to that kind of generational approach, he's also providing hope for this next, you know, generation of people for Amethyst. You know, he's he's reuniting her family and kind of it feels in a way like bridging the gap between these two decades for this child. I don't know if that's just me reading deeply, deeply into that, but it, yeah, it feels like Lin- he's provi- providing hope. Yes. Lindsay, you are on a show called Increment Vice <laughs> that is going to spend a goddamn year going through Inherent Vice scene by scene. You can't dig too deeply into Inherent Vice on this show. There, There's no bottom here. So don't worry, please. That is not the weirdest that this show has gotten, and it will not be the weirdest that it gets, I'm sure. But yeah, I think you're so right there. I mean... Again, we're, we're, we're skipping ahead to somebody else's scene, but um, you're right that, you know, when, when Coy and Hope reunite, what's the name of the song that plays, the Johnny Greenwood song that plays when they reunite? It's called Amethyst. It's not called the Harlingens. It's not called Reunited. It's called Amethyst. And I think I think you're right that there is, all Doc can do is is plant this one seed, this, this one flower, and hope that something good comes of it in the future. And... Oh, oh boy. Talk about top five scenes that make you cry. I'm getting all... (laughs) But to to jump to the thematic meat of this scene and why I thought you would be so, so wonderful to talk to about it, and forgive me as I ramble for a moment, but in the the first episode of this podcast, when I was talking to our mutual pal, Blake Howard, I talked a lot about Joan Didion and her essay, The White Album. And if anyone out there hasn't read The White Album... It's this amazing, amazing work that kind of loosely catalogs the significant moments of Didion's life while living in 60s L.A., braiding all of her experiences, you know, living in the city, experimenting with drugs, watching the doors disintegrate during a recording session, coming to know Manson family member Linda Kasabian during her trial in the 1970 Manson trial for the murder of Didion's friend Sharon Tate, among others. She braids all of these elements into this big, sprawling attempt to apply narrative to the passage of time. And forgive me, Lindsay, because I know you know all this. (laughs) But um, she writes, those who survived the 60s told themselves stories to make sense of the pain, the madness, the gnawing sense of loss that followed the hangover of a passing era. Times changed, or excuse me, times passed, times changed. Everything was to teach us something, she wrote noting that in this light, all narrative was sentimental. And it's that kind of sentimental application of narrative that allows for the excavation of meaning from the senselessness of ever-passing time. There's a, and again, Lindsay, you know what's up. There's this amazing, maybe my favorite paragraph of the entire piece where Didion draws this kind of fate-struck kite string from her purchase of a wedding dress on the morning of JFK's death. 
to a drunken party a few years later during which director Roman Polanski stained that dress with red wine. And she connects that all the way to that god-awful summer of 1970 in which Didion found herself buying another dress, this time for Linda Kasabian to wear during her testimony concerning the murder of Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate. And Didion was just grappling with this. What did this all mean? This decade-long series of dresses that seems to reflect the dawn and dusk of the 60s, Kennedy's murder and then the Manson murders. Mustn't it all mean something? And if it does mean something, if it's all for something, doesn't that make our sense of time's passing just as important? And she wrote, I believe this to be an authentically senseless chain of correspondences. But in the jingle jangle morning of that summer, it made as much sense as anything else did. And the reason I'm rambling on about all of that, and trust me, people listening, I'm going to shut up and let Lindsay talk. But the reason I am rambling on about all of that is because to me, that's exactly what this scene is about. And to a larger extent, it's what this film is about. It's that Didion-esque notion of staring into this golden fanged abyss of horrors and pain and loss after the passing of an era and desperately needing a narrative so that it can make sense so that we can live with it which is why a detective story is such a brilliant vehicle in my mind for this kind of end of an era story because the detective story by its very nature it requires people to come to its to the detective with a mystery and say make sense of this to come to the hero with this wine-stained dress or a dead friend and say, give me a narrative. Take the jingle-jangle madness of all these random elements and tell me a story in order to live. And I have to be able to live with this. You have to tell me something that will allow that. So many of the characters in this film, from Shasta Faye to Tariq Khalil to Hope Harlingen to Jade to Coy Harlingen to Clancy Sherlock to that hippie-hating mad dog himself, Bigfoot Bjornsson, they all come to dock with these pieces and clues and hints, hoping that he'll complete their story. And to me, this scene is the magnum opus of that theme played out. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'll shut is... up. <laughs> no, and it is the story that does get kind of completed by the end, too. It's like, like I was saying before, it's kind of the core, emotional core of this movie kicks off right here. And I think it's funny, you know, we were talking about different relationships throughout PTA's career and how we appreciate that tenderness and everything. And I love that this scene opens with like one of the most disgusting <laughs> stories of <laughs> a relationship coming together. Uh, a meet squalid as she yeah, calls it. Should have met cute, but we met squalid. Oh my God. It's my favorite like turn of phrase in this movie. And um, you know, amongst many wonderful things. And uh, yeah, I, I, that's just kind of a, a side note, but um yeah, I love that this, like you were saying, you know, Didion's essay is something that I reference a lot in my work. And it's something we were talking before we recorded that we both carry the book around with us a lot, the White Album, uh, where the yeah, story is compiled yeah. along with some of her other essays. And it's it's true. It's because, you know, the, this notion of telling ourselves stories to live, I think, you know, that's like film in general. It's just that that encompasses so much. And uh, yeah, I think it's a really beautiful sentiment. And I also think it's interesting that she ends the essay essay by saying, you know, she starts it by saying we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And she ends the essay by saying writing this has not yet helped me to see what it means. So it's kind of it's also what this movie grapples with for me, which is this idea of, yeah, we need these stories in order to live. But also they don't necessarily 
help us live or the, the meaning is not necessarily there at the end it's an interesting like juxtaposition of ideas if that makes sense it's both yeah. like acknowledging it and and acknowledging that you know that there's no sometimes there are no answers either which is what this movie is to me there's like this through line but then there's a lot of you know empty empty threads also yeah i mean i mean that's 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 the great part of a detective story the best detective stories are the ones i think that not everything not every box gets ticked off yeah not not everything which like you know what's that great line from true detective this is a world where never nothing gets solved and <laughs> i think that as far as that applies to this film i think that in this film one of the ideas is the end point to grief is there is no end point yeah that it's but we tell ourselves if i could just know if it was if it, as i was saying earlier you know when when joan joan i'm saying it like she's my pal uh mm -hmm. uh when Joni, my buddy when she's grappling with this decade-long series of dresses this dress that she bought the day that jfk died which you could say is like the symbolic beginning of the 60s it gets ruined by roman polanski whose wife's murder symbolizes the end of the 60s and so now she's got to go buy another dress for linda kasabian who kind of in a very distant way had a hand in that though that yeah. awful night and the end of that decade this connection of dresses and famous horrible deaths with weirdly enough roman polanski being this 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 tether between them this has to mean something and i think it's easy to to get caught in that kind of emotional cul-de-sac where you get so focused on trying to excavate the meaning so you don't have to face the pain yeah it's if you can give yourself this mission if you can give yourself this reason to to discover and to search and to to look out for something i think that that almost it can be functionally numbing and i think so many of the characters in this film they are doing that and they are trying to find ways to grapple with what they've lost and yet what is also interesting is i think the the you know kind of cruel joke of the film is none of them are wrong in this film in this film there is a grand weird wild very hazily defined conspiracy that is behind the loss that all of these people feel. Tariq Khalil's neighborhood really did disappear. Yeah. He didn't just lose it. Uh, Hope Harlingen is her, her, she's very aptly named. She is right in her hope, in her belief that Koi Harlingen is still alive. We know that Bigfoot lost his partner and that uh, we know that this mysterious force is also behind, or at least partly behind Shasta Faye's disappearance. And I love that the film is constantly obfuscating and fogging its points so that you can't even say if this is an actual explicit declaration of something. The movie says everything almost with kind of a shrug, like, well, maybe, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe. Which also feels very Didion-esque to me. As you said, going back to that ending, she starts off so beautifully and famous, famously declaring, this is why we tell ourselves stories. This is why we, as sentient beings, need narrative. And then by the end, she's like, or maybe not. <laughs> it, 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 didn't work for, it didn't work for me. And I, I also kind of wonder if that's a bit of where 
Anderson ends this story is, you know, with that great line, this don't mean we're back together. Yeah. Even though we have these two people in a car. And boy, we are so already so far, so far from our scene. But yeah, it's that 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 ambiguous. This this didn't solve. This isn't going to solve our problems. You know that, right? This knowing the story doesn't make the ending doesn't make the ending any easier doesn't make it any less painful and i think that that's i mean god isn't that the isn't that the idea of the death of the 60s just knowing how it happened knowing that it happened unless you have an ending like once upon a time in hollywood it's still gonna hurt even if you understand why it happened yeah absolutely well and i mean i think to go back to the the example that you used from the essay with the dress it also kind of shows us how to tie it to this movie, how our own kind of self-interest dictates how we like perceive these decades and these these monumental things that happen to us. Like, obviously, Joan Didion's dress has nothing to do with the '60s, but that's yeah. her way of orienting herself within the trauma of this time. You know, it's her experience and it's her finding meaning within these symbols. And I think that's what each individual thread of this movie is doing too. It's these characters making sense of this big thing that's you know they're all a part of through their own way of, you know, latching onto that, however arbitrary that might be. So I think that's, that's a really interesting, I like that that's the thing that kind of stood out to you from that essay. And I also think Linda Kasabian's a really interesting figure because to relate it also back to this scene, I think, I think Hope is kind of a Linda Kasabian-esque character in that, you know, she, as you mentioned, she's kind of the one that, that helps, well, Linda was kind of the one that helped and in a way this hippie culture thing by being the person who got Manson put behind bars and in a way hope is the one kind of ushering this new hope into the story at the end of all of this you know like you said vague conspiracy theory type of thing so yeah I see them as similar characters also former drug addicted young women who have children that are kind of the motivation for some of this new life also there's a very Manson-esque Manson girl quality to her Exactly, which is again another reason why I felt like I had to have you on to discuss this scene. I felt like this is your scene to yes. talk about, and and I would and I don't mean this to make light of anything. As much as you say that Hope Harlingen feels like she could have been a Linda Kasabian type former member of the family, in a weird way, and I hope this makes sense to you or someone. Linda Kasabian almost feels like she could be a character in Inherent Vice herself. She feels yeah. like an Inherent Vice character to me. She feels like a character trapped by all of these forces and all of these fates and stuck in this cycle that she can't break free of. And, you know, you're so right that something that had I've seen this film so many damn times and I've written extensively about this film. And my God, my God, as you you're getting the the double barrel blast of right now i have talked and spoken about this film so extensively you know it never occurred to me this connecting hope to being a kasabian like figure you're right in that in addition to what what you just mentioned if she never put doc on coy if she never called doc and said you know my husband is dead but i don't think he's dead if she'd never done that, Doc never would have been pointed at the Golden Fang. He never would have he never would have found out what Vigilant California is. He wouldn't have figured out what that the Vigilant California is a wing of the Golden Fang. He wouldn't have until he found Koi there. He wouldn't have understood the true significance of the Criscylodone Institute and all of these things. 
you know, even even with Bigfoot pushing Doc to to kill Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverton out of out of revenge, and we're we're definitely getting into whiteboard territory where we're, we're gonna have to start like writing stuff on the side of a bar like bar does, <laughs> like like Doc does here in a minute. Uh, even with all those things going on, without hope, without the hope of hope, without her calling Doc, he never would have cracked any of these other cases, all of these satellite cases that are connected. And he never would have discovered that there was a thing called the Golden Fang. He never would have even slightly been able to wound or slow them down. And yeah, that, that had never occurred to me. That's, that is so why I love doing this show, because since this is a movie that I think way too much about getting perspectives like this and being able to see with fresh eyes a film I've seen too many times, that's absolutely amazing. So I'm Thank you for that. Gold star for Lindsay. I appreciate it. But before we go, before we keep getting serious about a generation exploited, I do want to swing back to we should have met cute, but we met squalid. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing line. And it's also this is an amazing scene. And not just because it gets the big trailer. Ah, moment when Doc sees what uh, what uh, Amethyst looked like when she was unfortunately as addicted to heroin as her parents. This is the most quietly funny scene in the film. All thanks to the subtlety of Joaquin Phoenix's hyper reactive performance to this steady accretion of horrors that hope rattles off. I don't like, I, I, I was trying to be quiet when you and I were watching the scene, but that 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 first moment when she says, you know, to complicate to complicate matters, he he had this hard on, and the the <laughs> terror in Doc's face as he quietly whispers, "Sure, sure," <laughs> uh, and then finally when he can't take it anymore, when she says, "I'm a drug counselor," I'm sorry, like it, it, it's the, there's a whole film to be made. There's a great like uh, uh, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope type road movie between Doc. And Hope Harlingen, just just they are such a mismatched, weird hippie duo, and I love seeing them together. And it they their their timing is so perfect together. I I I just adore watching them. I wish there was more of them in the film together. Yeah, it's so funny. I love how she just like tells this loving story of how she met her husband, and it's like truly the grossest thing that I've ever heard. Where she's literally like throwing up into his lap as he's like taking a dump. Uh, it's just, I mean, she obviously like acknowledges that it's gross at a certain point, but it's still just funny. She's got this like look of love in her eyes, like that's how me and my husband met each other, and it's like through a fog of piss and shit <laughs> <laughs> or vomit and shit, I should say. But that's what makes. In a way, <laughs> that accretion of vomit and feces and boners mm-hmm. and heroin, uh, in a way, that makes me love her and Koi even more. Because in something that I love about her character is there's no bullshit to her. Yeah. There's no there's no dress there's no dolling up how they met. Uh, there's no prettying it up. You know, she's like, look, we were fuck ups, we were addicts. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was puking between his legs as he was shitting and he had a boner. Sure. (laughs) Sure. And there's, there's, there's a realness and there's a trueness to her. And even to the point where she's like, Hey, here's a picture of Amethyst. This is what we had her looking like. And as much as we all laugh at that scene, that's actually, I mean, that's a 
you know, thank God they didn't show that picture because that would be so harrowing and, and, and derail the zine. But that is a really harrowing thing to admit, let alone show someone. And this is really serious, dark stuff that we're that we're laughing at because of these two amazing comic performances. But I do love and appreciate that. Yeah, there's no bullshit to her. This is she's she's one of the most real characters in the film to me that, that could walk. You know, some of these characters, they're just too much. They're too outsized and funhouse stretched as much as I love them. I feel like Hope could walk right out of the screen and into 1970 and I would buy it. She really is, you know, kind of a Kasabian figure in that way. You're right. Speaking of the darkness that under underlies this sequence and the things that they're talking about, I think that one of the most disturbing elements of this movie is the portrait of an exploited generation this is so kind of blinded and wounded and stunned by the last couple of couple years of the 60s they're so spun out that it leaves them in this position of vulnerability and they're on this 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 twisted hamster wheel of american life in which the golden fang orchestrates shit like the election of nixon and the vietnam war so that American life is so depressing and so despairing that it will drive these droves of hippies into abusing the heroin that the thing itself is funneling out of its very own Southeast Asian war effort. And then when these hippies OD and they need to clean up, they do so at a fang owned and operated rehab joint like the Chris Kyledon Institute. And after which they, they pay fang fronted dentists to replace their heroin rotted teeth like my chompers. And then they either join Fang-backed outfits like Vigilant California, which is what what Koi does, or they fall back on the Fang smack and start the whole cycle over again. And as much as I make a joke, like, okay, Boomer, uh, earlier in the show, that portrait of a generation so despairing and so lost in that kind of Ouroboros cycle, my heart breaks for them in this scene and as as we see this generation trapped by forces they can't even name because they don't even know that they exist and that my my heart breaks for them when i see that but it also makes me feel so chilled because doesn't that kind of feel like 2020 yeah doesn't doesn't that feel like right now yeah absolutely i think it's it's that that moment of change and yeah it does go back to that manson ability where everything just feels you know they're under this fog of war and all of these different things that feel so chaotic and the hippie movement was supposed to be this thing that was that saved them and was their their expression of free love and all this stuff and in a way it ended up being a curse because of the mansons and so yeah it's kind of this feeling of hopelessness like nothing that we do to try to to put a, a bandage over this open wound this open cultural wound nothing can really contain that and yeah it is really how it feels right now i think it doesn't you know the fact that it's a decade ending when we're at the beginning of a new decade it's yeah i definitely felt that same thing and i like that this movie uses astrology in a way it almost makes it feel like this cosmic thing that you know it mentions that you know, uh, they were stuck in the unluckiest angle possible between Neptune, the doper's planet, and Uranus, the planet of surprise, of rude surprises, making it this cosmic thing almost in a way feels like it was meant to happen. And yeah, I don't, I don't know what that says about our times, but I definitely noticed that as well and felt that that feeling of like remorse and also 
pity for ourselves <laughs> and the young people today. Well, two things. The first being, this is this will tell you, you know, a thing about my maturity level. I love that Pinchon will work a, a dick and fart joke anywhere he can. I always take Uranus, the planet of rude surprises, to be a poop yeah. joke, which I love. And I'm sorry. I know. I, I, I we're, we're being. You're being so like, so real right now, and uh, I'm breaking your vibe. I'm breaking the vibe by okay. by talking about about poo. But uh, but in addition to that, yeah, you're right. And and when I say it feels like now, I guess what I mean is, I think we are right now looking out at a cultural landscape that's pretty fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, my God, I, you know, I keep thinking about that final line from Ridley Scott's The Counselor. And everyone shut up. That's a good movie. But uh, I keep thinking about the, the, the final line. And the slaughter to come is probably beyond our imagining. I think you've told me more than I wish to know. And I feel like we're looking at this landscape right now in 2020, this this new decade. And it's terrifying. And it's a landscape that a lot of which feels was born out of apathy uh, from people who would otherwise could have been more of the good guys and could have made a more positive change. And yet in this kind of golden fanged cycle that we're in this, this landscape of that, that I think in part was created by, by too many people not paying attention and not caring. It only makes you want to not pay attention and not care even more and yeah. drop out even further so that the badness continues to perpetuate. And so much, I feel like so much of that is, especially in the novel Inherent Vice, where, you know, the the, the Timothy Leary, what's that Timothy Leary line? Um, you know, tune in, turn on, and then drop out. And I think that's what, I think that's what it was. And you see this generation who started dropping out. And as they drop out, you get Nixon ascendant, you get Kent State, you get the death of uh, Kennedy and King, and that only makes you want to drop out even further and disconnect from American life even further to take the heroin that's coming out of Southeast Asia, and to just say, you know, fuck it, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to look anymore. I can't, I can't look anymore. It hurts too much. This hurts too much, and so I'm going to tune out and tell myself a different story, and. Again, not to you know bang the same drum. I feel that is so analogous to where we are right now, where it's a lot easier to talk about inherent vice for <laughs> hours on end than it is to watch CNN and have to think about those realities. And I and I and I feel very much. I don't I don't know how in, intentional it is, but I, I do feel very much that this book and this film speak to. Their its version, their versions of 1970 speak to our very real version of 2020 so loudly and so clearly that it kind of breaks my heart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, instead of drowning ourselves in heroin, we're just drowning ourselves in memes on the internet to like <laughs> disconnect from everything. I actually saw oh. someone tweet something about that today, which is like, I'm acknowledging that terrible things are happening in the world, but I'm going to make jokes about it via memes because that's my way of coping. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we what we oh, have geez. to do. Well, like Homer Simpson slowly backing into a bush. Uh, I am yeah. going to delete delete the gif of Doc screaming at the picture that I was just going to send you. Never mind. Forget that. Forget that. <laughs> no, right. I want it. Please. It'll help me, <laughs> it'll help me deal. <laughs> but that, 
that's something else that I, I, I wanted to talk to you about. And God, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm getting ready to warn you, God, we're really going to get nerdy now because Jesus, we're on an Inherent Vice podcast. How cool can we be? But speaking of this film's 1970, speaking to our very real 2020, I find this fairly visually nondescript scene of Doc and Hope sitting in a kind of cream-walled breakfast nook where there's not really a lot of color. Doc is dressed, you know, he's he's got his coat on and a flannel shirt. It's very kind of, very, very plain looking, really, especially kind of surprisingly plain with, you know, a photographer like Ellswood and a guy who brought us, you know, the dazzlingly Technicolor Boogie Nights vision of this era. And something that I find so interesting is there's a cinematographer out there. His name is Vashi Nedomansky. And he was on, he put together and put this on Twitter, this massive mosaic of every single shot of Inherent Vice, of which there are 730. And I promise this is going somewhere. <laughs> and in doing so, in, in, in compiling all 730 shots of Inherent Vice, he found about 90% of those are close-ups. Hmm. And I've always been really curious about, since the film's release, what dictated that creative choice? Your PTA. You've got a cinematographer as unparalleled as Robert Ellswood at your disposal. And you've got this beach noir story set in 1970s L.A. Why not go full tilt boogie nights with it? And, you know, you know, Anderson kind of gave this a sidelong answer once. And he said there were a lot of close-ups in Inherent Vice and a lot of locations. There's not much else to look at. They're kind of dingy little motel rooms and apartments and stuff. Plus, what's better than a Jenna Malone close-up? Not much. Pretty high on the list of great things. <laughs> and that's all well and good. But as we watch this film, and then at, there's these few wide shots at the beginning of Doc ambling around the street in Gordita Beach after Shasta first drives off. The field of view of the film continues to narrow and narrow and narrow to these nigh endless shots of, or series of two shots throughout the movie as Doc sits and talks with folks. But that feels as time has gone on, I, I, that was one of the few things that kind of I felt let me down the first time I saw this is visually I was like, well, this is not a very interesting film. But now it seems to me all it's so it's so important because what it does is by continually narrowing the field of focus uh, of what we're able to look at. Instead of making this a movie that underlines the era with all sorts of massive 1970 signifiers, it kind of allows this movie to exist hazily in any time. Because you watch this movie, it doesn't feel like a super 1970s movie to me the way Boogie Nights does or the way Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does. And I love both of those films. I'm not knocking both of those films for doing that. But I think that in narrowing and restricting those things. And I'm sure if PTA was here, he'd be like, nah, man, we just didn't have any money. I couldn't afford to shoot Hollywood Boulevard the way Quentin could. There's something about that, this keeping everything tight on the faces and not really giving us these huge hippie Latin vistas of Sunset Boulevard and Hollywood Boulevard and, and showing us driving you know, from, from Hollywood proper to Van Nuys, like in Once Upon a Time. It allows this film to more directly communicate to right now because it feels like right now. You know, I watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Hollywood, I don't feel like I'm watching a movie about right now. I watch Inherent Vice, I feel like I'm watching a movie about right now. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way, but I think, you know, using the, like you're talking about the shots, 
you know, it, to me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is some a movie that I've written a lot about and thought a lot about. And to me, it's it's such a corrective movie. Like it's a movie trying to correct the past. And I don't like. I think you talked about this at the beginning of this episode. That's not really what Inherent Vice is. It's not about correcting the past. It's about kind of. It's about a lot of things. But it, it, <laughs> as I as I know you you get into in this podcast. But it's to me like that's not the the motive. You know. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino looking back at this at this time in this decade and saying, if only we had done things this way. And this movie, I feel like, is saying, we did things this way, and here's how we move forward from that. And I don't know if that's reflective so much in the shots. That was a, a beautiful point that you made. But I do think that there's something to that. <laughs> to that. Like, it, it, Tarantino's movie kind of lingers in this past and this aesthetic and is very, like, wistful for it. And, I yeah, I don't know that this movie it happens to be set there and it happens to be about this generational shift, but it's not so tied to that. That's not like what is important here. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not knocking once upon a time for doing that, but I think they're two films have very different names. I adore once upon a time. I'm obsessed with once upon a time in Hollywood. (laughs) Um, Not quite ready to make a podcast about it, but I love it. But to speak to what you just said, I think you're right. And, you know, there, there's two very different aims. I know there's been a lot of people that said these films would make a great double feature. And I think in kind of a way they would because they're they're kind of starting at the same place and going in two different directions. Because, as you said, Once Upon a Time lingers on the era so lovingly. And I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a movie that so badly wants to be in 1969 and in, in, in Tarantino's memory piece version of what that 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 time was whereas what's if there is something that connects inherent vice intrinsically to its time it's that once upon a time in hollywood only wants to be in 1969 it doesn't want to be in anywhere else the thing about inherent vice is i feel like it wants it's a movie that wants to be anywhere other than where it is it desperately wants to get away from the hazy kind of smog choked hell of 1970 it wants to be anywhere else inherent vice is like rick dalton it just wants to rewind the clock and get out of here and and that's why in a way in a, in a way to go down a little once upon a time inherent vice uh cul-de-sac here that's i how i think the films actually kind of work well together because you don't want to have a double feature where the movies are too too similar one is a movie that just wants to be here right or right there so badly and just just luxuriate and relish in where it's at and inherent vice so desperately desperately wants to get away and find a story that will take it away yeah absolutely I, to get really nerdy about this um I can oh let's go it, let's do it i can i can relate it a little bit to mythology which is this idea of to me once upon a time in hollywood is kind of this concept of the american monomyth which is wanting to get back to a time when something was good you know that's kind of this like nostalgic thing that a lot of people have and that a lot of our cinema and culture is rooted in right now is just this idea of like wanting and yearning for the past where everything was good and everything was fine whereas you know in kind of more progressive mythology there's this idea of things being changed you know embracing change and this idea and that's kind of what separates american mythology from you know ancient cultures and whatnot Campbellian mythology and yeah i just thought of that as we were talking about this like once upon a time hollywood is really rooted in that nostalgia and 
and inherent vice is really rooted in this idea of change and evolution, which I think as much as I love once upon a, once upon a time in Hollywood is something to me, that's a, a, the inherent vice side of it to me is a little bit maybe healthier or yeah, not so obsessed with this idea of just existing because, you know, the past, not to recall the words of our current president, but this idea of making America great again, as if it was ever great is kind of this lie that we tell ourselves. And I think inherent vice knows that it was never great. And yeah, I, I don't wow. know. I'm getting <laughs> Lindsay. We are going places in this show tonight that I did not expect. I did I just, not expect this. I just brought I in Joseph you, you Campbell. Know. You know, that's what I do. <laughs> uh, American monomyths, Campbellian heroes, Trump. We. Th- this is a very appropriately inherent vice episode. I thank you for that. I thank you for that. That's what I bring to the table. I just you know. <laughs> <laughs> it really as i'm like talking and as i was saying that i'm like i don't even know where i'm going with this but <laughs> there's things flashing in my head that make sense well you 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 have left out the fact that the new star wars movie sucks that's like the one Lindsay. <laughs> but i don't want to like i don't want to have a bunch of people start shooting blow darts at us or like you know <laughs> chasing after us or something like that yeah i don't want to uh, bring because... that negative juju to your podcast <laughs> which is very wholesome and doesn't deserve that <laughs> No, we'll just talk about Trump. That's, you know, that's, that's not dark at all. No. Uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, that, that's, I mean, again, this, 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 I feel like this, this idea that I have about the way the film is visually structured, that is probably one of those things that, you know, when the director would hear it, you know, he'd be like, no, it didn't occur to me at all. That's not what it was. But to me, I feel like there has to be a reason for that. And to the point that I'm not sure if you were aware of this, um, this film essentially kind of put the kibosh on Robert Ellsworth's relationship with PTA uh, during a, an appearance on a light the fuse podcast last year. Ells- Ellsworth was asked to describe their working relationship. And he just said, God, I don't know what it is anymore. It's like a bad married couple. It's unpleasant. And he was asked, well, are you going to work together again? He's like, I don't know. Probably not. You know, it depends on how he feels. I would do it again. But I didn't enjoy myself on Inherent Vice. It was a combination of me and Paul just not getting along. And I can be just as immature as him. And, you know, I had it made me wonder, well, what 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 could have separated these two who have been kind of inseparable since the beginning, with the exception of the master when Ellswood simply wasn't available? Uh, what would send Ellswood reeling like that? And just like, you know, I can't I can't work with this guy at least for a while. And I wonder if it had something to do with there had to be somewhere along the line a very conscious choice of this is how the movie is going to look. And it is distinct because no other PTA movie looks like this movie. No other PTA film has shots framed like this at that as we talked or as we were saying, I'll just it's a series of two shots. It's just people sitting at tables and chatting. And while I know that he's very I think PTA is a director who's very enamored with actors and the mythology of actors and their faces on the screen and when you have a movie like this that is so overloaded with such an insane cast you want those close-ups you want to see jenna malone uh on a her her face filling a big screen you want to see katherine waterston and martin short of all people you want to see them big on the screen but it does so in a way that none of his other films do and that's what makes me think that there might be something behind this the very strange very 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 mid to close close-up shot design of this film which is what made me think well maybe it's 
maybe it's just to make it now. It's, it's, it's to make the movie now. It's to make this isn't a movie about the 1970s. This is not Boogie Nights. We're not going to have fun with this the way we had fun in Boogie Nights. And I guess in a way, if we really want to go off on tangent, we can say this is like this is like PTA's Irishman. This where it's a, basically saying this is the one that's not going to be fun. We're not here to have fun with this and make a make a goof of the 70s the way we did before. This is this is about something deeper. And I'd also yeah. like to say I'm maybe the only person that's compared in hair advice to the Irishman. Probably <laughs> because I'm wrong. Probably because they have nothing, they're nothing like. No, but I think that's interesting. It's funny because at the top of this episode, I think I described this as a, a zany movie. And I think there's zaniness in it, especially in the scene that we're talking about. But yeah, I do think like overall it's a, a lot more contemplative maybe than something like, like Boogie Nights and for all the reasons that you mentioned. Like I, I don't know that I really piece together the close-ups thing i i'm always kind of the worst at cinematography i don't know that my my brain like notices that stuff and that's something i really appreciate when i talk to people who have these kind of visual minds is that yeah they notice stuff like the close-ups and whatnot which is something that sometimes takes me a few watches um so now i'm going to be thinking about that whenever i watch it my like gut instinct with that is to just say that this one's so oriented and like human connection that that might be part of it too you know it's it's oh, kind of so good you're so yeah, smart, that... Lindsay. <laughs> well, but yeah, just this idea that like it's not about a place and time. It's about how these people are connected to each other and woven together and how their narratives all crisscross. And maybe that's like what he's he's focusing on and why he's so up in their up in their face for all of this. You stuff, but... are blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I want to I'm going to I want to yell like Doc. Yeah, that's so right. This, that's what this movie It's people connecting. It's just this this ever building series of people connecting with doc because i mean I, I said it earlier without even making this specific connection tell these people bringing their stories to doc and saying you know find a narrative here build something for me yeah. and in doing so they do form they form this kind of very intimate connection and like with doc being this hub and all these people being spokes on a wheel that are connecting to, connecting to him you're you're, you're exactly right yeah, there's kind of a building sense of claustrophobia a little bit too as things just keep going along and we feel like there's not a ton of answers and maybe that's why as you said like the close-ups kind of the, the shots start to kind of get even more so focused on faces and whatnot um maybe that's and yet, intentional and yet as much as we're going on about this 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 one aspect of it uh i say going on like this isn't a show that does nothing but go on about this <laughs> i do again i do feel that that scene at the end though where where Doc and Hope, they hug. I think that's one of the most beautiful, visually, one of the most beautiful moments in the film. And I'd put it right up there with some of the most beautiful shots out of, say, Phantom Thread, which I think is one of his all-time most gorgeous-looking films. There's there's that just there's such a sweetness to it. And aesthetically, I think it's beautiful the way that it kind of flashes. Like I said, the way um, the, the, the way the flash photography worked on on the long goodbye kind of hazing out the image to look like 70s smog choked LA and 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 amidst that kind of smoggy light just seeing these two people kind of hug and hang on to each other in the middle of all this madness there's something extraordinary extraordinarily beautiful about the way that's composed and what that what that says at least to me yeah absolutely it's these people too that have just met and are really connected by kind of a thread and yeah that hug just it's just this kind of tender moment. And I think it really solidifies like his modus operandi going forward, you know, which is to help this woman who came to him with just kind of a simple, maybe not simple, but you know, a request, which is <laughs> <laughs> find my husband or I don't think he's dead. And 
yeah it's it's definitely very sweet and i love it i love this whole scene oh god i'm so glad i'm so glad that you do because again i wouldn't know who else to talk to about (laughs) this moment than you and i will say that i also i i love so much that the speaking of threads uh and i'm not going to make a phantom thread pun here but but it is kind of a phantom thread that weaves through i the idea that it's again it's shasta yeah kind of underneath is what is what binds them because shasta fey um picked them up once hitchhiking koi yeah. and hope and you know she meant she mentions that uh you know i think koi i think he actually kind of kept up with shasta after and you get and what i love is is, is the the way that this film's character and theme interplay with one another when Doc asks her, you know, you know, how did you guys know Shasta again? She, she picked us up hitchhiking and, you know, Koi managed to keep, you know, keep in contact with her. Doc has this kind of this, this look and he's, Doc's not a jealous enough asshole to go all aggro and be like, well, what does that mean? What is, what is, what is Koi and Shasta? What, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, but he does give her this look like, well, shit, what is that? Like, what's that all about? And yet, the 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 film is taking the film takes that idea uh and as a metaphor makes it more about shasta corrupting koi by introducing him to the golden fang and that's what's really going on and to me the way that's that's just such a a a quiet and tiny nuanced example of, of how this story uses reality and metaphor to investigate what is really just a story of relationships and the feelings that relationships elicit, but coming at them from, as you said earlier, PTA comes at this stuff from the weirdest possible angles. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. I feel kind of like an inherent vice character trying to lay that out. <laughs> no, but it makes no, sense think, in my head. Damn it. I think that makes sense too. And I think something that I just thought of as you were saying that is that like so much of this movie is about random connection too. like all of these people are mm-hmm. kind of related to each other just by random circumstance. And to bring that back to Didion, like that's her making sense of something by relating stuff to the random circumstances of her dress. You know, it's just like how we make sense of things is like everything's probably random occurrences, but they all weave together to tell these like stories of our lives. And yeah, I think that's what this movie is trying to do, even though the story of these people's lives is this weird con- conspiracy thing. I don't know if all of us have that interesting of a tale to tell, but yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know what? That is why I wanted you on today. Stuff like that. <laughs> you don't think you don't think I'm being serious, but I am. That is, that is why I had you on today. And that is why I wanted to talk to you about this scene is because I knew you would be able to suss things like that out of it. And I so, so appreciate you doing that for what is, I think, a very, very magical moment in what is, to me, as silly as it may be, a very magical film. And I thank you, Lindsay, for joining me today to talk about it and to to explore the weirdness of this. And as we as we start to fade out for the evening, can you tell people where they can find your stuff? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter uh, all the time, probably too much, uh, at Lindsay Romaine, which is just my name. And then you can also find me, I'm a contributing editor and staff writer for Nerdist.com. So that's where all my stuff lives now. But I've written for other places. I've written for Brightwall, Dark Room, and Vulture and whatnot. So yeah, but now I'm at Nerdist. (laughs) 
And if you sons of bitches give her any hell on Twitter, I swear to God, I better not find out about it. You know who I'm talking to. I appreciate everyone, that. <laughs> everyone knows The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars movie. That's all. It that, is. Yep. I should just put that in my Twitter bio at this point because it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of my whole deal. <laughs> oh God, we had such a good ending there, and then we had to go we had to go back to Star Wars. That's fine. That's just That's... where all roads in my life lead. <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah, you're kind of like Doc in that way. It all yeah. all the spokes in the wheel come back to this one place. You like thirsty Star Wars, and <laughs> God damn it, that's 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 your right. That's your right as an American. Until the I Golden so Fang too. takes that away, you have a right to love that weirdly sexy little wacky film. It's my just, happy place. I'm just, just you know, yeah. That is how I'm getting through 2020. <laughs> hey, Inherent Vice is doing it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just gotta last... cling, cling to what we love. Oh God! And if if that is not what Inherent Vice See, this is why you're the guest. Look how smart she is. We're clinging to what we love. That's exactly yeah. what we're doing. That's what Doc's doing. That's what Shasta's doing. That's what Koi is doing. That's what Hope is doing. So even what Bigfoot is doing. In the end, you cling to what you love. And and like I was saying earlier, when you do that, if you can help other people do that, if you can put one little family together, if you can be kind to someone, not be a dick to them on Twitter, you know, again, you know who I'm talking to. If you can just these little kindnesses in in times of madness like this, sometimes that's enough. And I think that's a big part of what inherent vice is and how that applies to any time, whether it's 1970, whether it's 2020. The timelessness of that notion is that shit can go to hell. The world can be falling apart. But if you can help someone get through their day, if you can help someone love someone else the way you love someone else. You're doing all right. You're doing a good thing, and you should keep it up. That's that's inherent vice, at least as at least as far as I'm concerned. Now let's you and me go have a good cry about all of that and about this scene. And I thank you again for coming on. Thank you for talking to me about this, and I thank everyone out there for listening as we rambled our way through this this most beautiful of inherent vice scenes. And you can join me next week when myself and a very special guest are going to go raiding Mickey Wolfman's tie closet. Boy, oh boy, was Lindsay ever the right guest for this one. Anyone willing to bat around Joan Didion and dick and fart jokes and American monomyths and that sick fuck Charlie Manson is sure to be a friend of the show, turning us on to new ideas and perspectives, just as Hope Harlingen stared Doc straight at the golden fang in her search for the mysteriously lost Koi. And in the end, that's all any of this is. Telling each other stories in order to make sense of the film's mysteries and beauties. And unlike old Joan Didion, these stories do help us see what it all means, even if it's just one scene at a time. Let's do it again next week, shall we? When we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.